Unboxing the Canon takes a closer look at the history of Western art. We might be seduced by the pretty packaging, such as soft brush strokes, brilliant colors, grand gestures, expert carving, even traditional iconography. But what happens when we take a deeper look? When we open the packaging and see what might have been invisible, or what is a cultural blind spot? Join Professor Linda Steer and listen in for a take on art history that connects the past to the present, critiques the canon, and reveals what might not be immediately apparent in Western art and its institutions. Welcome back. So I'm looking at a photograph that circulated in the news this summer. At the top center of the photograph, I see a bronze statue of a man on a horse set against a blue sky. The horse is standing atop a symmetrical, elaborately carved granite pedestal. Two columns frame a bronze plaque that is spray painted in white with the letters BLM, which stands for Black Lives Matter. Below that, there is much more graffiti with words and phrases such as love, blood on your hands, no more white supremacy, hold cops accountable, ACAB, an acronym for an anti-police slogan, as well as other anti-police statements, peace signs, etc. You get the idea. Later photographs of the same site show even more graffiti. In this episode, we take a look at the history of monuments and examine some of the issues surrounding monuments today. The statue in this photograph is a statue of Robert E. Lee and was installed in Richmond, Virginia in 1890. For those who might not know, Lee was a general in the Confederate Army, an army that led a rebellion against the United States on behalf of the southern states because those states wanted to preserve slavery. The South lost and Lee surrendered in 1865. It was a bloody war with hundreds of thousands of casualties, but in the end, four million enslaved people were freed. This is a brief synopsis of a complex period in U.S. history. Back to the monument. The entire object is 18 meters tall, and the bronze equestrian statue is around uh, 4 meters tall, a little bit larger than that. The statue, created by renowned monumental French sculptor Antonine Mercier, was displayed in Paris before it was shipped to the USA. The pedestal was designed by French architect Paul Pujol. The monument was commissioned by the Ladies' Memorial Association, an organization of women whose aim was to bury and commemorate Confederate soldiers who had died. The United Daughters of the Confederacy, an offshoot of the Ladies' Memorial Association, formed in 1894. The United Daughters of the Confederacy was allied with the KKK. So, those who raised money and commissioned the statue had connections to violent white supremacist organizations. That tells us something about the meaning of the monument. 
An article in the November 1891 edition of the American Architect and Building News claims that the South had difficulty in raising money to commemorate its fallen soldiers. The article states that those who commissioned the statue of Lee wanted it to be as large as one of Washington that was nearby. This article from 1891 regards Lee as a traitor, especially when compared to Washington. The inability of the South to raise significant amounts of money for commemorative sculpture was seen as indicative of its failure to win the war. So it is a monument to a failed general in a failed war, but it depicts him as heroic. That is interesting because attempts to reframe Lee as a hero and not as a traitor and to claim that he was heroic continue today. Now let's jump to about 130 years later. In the summer of 2020, many monuments in Richmond were removed as a result of Black Lives Matter protests that erupted after George Floyd, an unarmed 46-year-old black man in Minneapolis, was ruthlessly killed by police. His crime? He was suspected of passing a counterfeit $20 bill. Suspected. For $20, a police officer knelt on his neck until he could no longer breathe. But Floyd is only one of many black men and women killed by the police. The only statue that is still standing in Richmond's Monument Avenue is this one I've been discussing. It was the first to be installed and is the last one remaining. Its fate is to be decided in October. Governor Ralph Northam had ordered it removed, but that removal was delayed by a court injunction claiming it was supposed to be located on Monument Avenue in perpetuity. What does this monument signify? Well, Lee's monument contains an equestrian statue, a form of commemoration that we can trace to ancient Rome. These larger-than-life statues of men on horses were usually created to celebrate an emperor for his military victories. The connection to ancient Rome is important because, as Camille Squires points out in an article in Mother Jones, quote, white landowners of this time saw the Greeks and Romans as their racial ancestors, end quote. The statue of Lee suggests that white people are naturally superior. It connects the Confederate army to a glorious Roman past. It honors a man as though he were victorious, when in fact he wasn't. It represents a false narrative. The removal of Confederate statues in the American South is part of a worldwide movement to confront the violent legacy of colonialism, the transatlantic slave trade, the attempted genocide of indigenous people, and other atrocities committed by Europeans and settlers. In Bristol, England, for example, protesters tore down a statue of slave trader Edward Colston and threw it into the harbor. In Belgium, protesters have been removing statues of King Leopold II, a 19th century ruler who created horrific injustices in what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. 
Here in Canada, protesters in Montreal toppled a statue of John A. Macdonald, Canada's first Prime Minister, who starved Indigenous people in Canada's prairies and founded Canada's residential schools, acts which are now viewed as genocidal. Monuments honoring men like Lee, who fought a war so that people in the South could continue to own other human beings, are abhorrent. Obviously. There is no legitimate reason to allow these statues to continue to stand as is. Something has to be done with them. The only question is, what? What should we do with these monuments now? Some claim that to tear them down is an attempt to change the past, to change or erase history. Others say, well, men like John A. Macdonald also did good things, such as build the railway in Canada, so we should celebrate that. Others claim the monuments have artistic value and should not be defaced or moved. Let's think about some of these ideas and consider some of the different options. In 2017 in Charlottesville, neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups who had gathered to protest the planned removal of another monument to Lee violently attacked counter-protesters, killing one and injuring many others. In the wake of that, Art News put the question to experts. What should we do with these monuments? Their answers were published in an article called Tear Down the Confederate Monuments, But What Next? 12 art historians and scholars on the way forward. The contributors propose a range of responses. For instance, Jeff Chang, executive director of the Institute for Diversity in the Arts, states that it doesn't matter what we do with the statues. What matters is what we do with the conversations we are having about them. He and some of the others quoted in the article realize that there is a lot more to do than remove statues. Greg Downs, a history prof at UC Davis, notes that even though some of the people depicted in the statues might be admirable, the causes they fought for are abhorrent. He also reminds us that these statues do not represent a history of the South, as some argue. Four million slaves were also Southerners. Where are they in these monuments? That's a really good question. Like others in this article, Downs proposes contextualizing the statues and providing information about what they represent. But he also maintains that, quote, Some of the memorials are so painful that their historical value is minimal compared to the pain that they cause, end quote. And as Nikki A. Green, a prof in the arts of Africa and the African diaspora at Wellesley College reminds us, The phrase, putting someone on a pedestal, indicates that we respect their character. Are men like Lee to be respected? Who respects him? And what does it mean to respect a person who fought for the enslavement of others? Many of the art historians interviewed in this article caution that for many people in America, the figure of Lee functions to create terror. Green describes the presence of Confederate statues as looming intimidation. The subject of public space is an important one. To whom does public space belong? 
it is supposed to belong to all of us. So if the space belongs to all of us, how could we have statues that commemorate individuals or causes who sought to enslave, starve, or otherwise harm some of us? Historian Reiko Hillier brings up the example of Memento Park in Budapest, a park created to house statues of communist figures such as Stalin and other art glorifying the Soviet Union when Hungary was under communist rule. These statues and works of art were not destroyed, but they were removed to a place where people could choose to see them and where they could be adequately contextualized. Akko Shalad, the architect of the site, claims that, I'm quoting him here, this park is about dictatorship. And at the same time, because it can be talked about, described and built up, this park is about democracy. After all, only democracy can provide an opportunity to think freely about dictatorship. End quote. This method of preserving, isolating, and contextualizing monuments deflates claims about the erasure of history. Keeping the art from the communist era reminds people of the oppressive force of dictatorship and ostensibly will help to prevent it from happening again. Hillier is concerned that destroying the Confederate statues will erase the past and, quote, uphold a myth of white innocence, end quote. Removing and contextualizing the statues might allow for a greater understanding of what the monuments signified when they were erected and how their reception has changed over time. Another historian, Kate Messer, does not agree that taking down the monuments will erase history. She writes that, quote, public monuments make a statement about what a community honors and wants to remember, end quote. Now that's a powerful statement. Something to consider. What and who do we want to remember? What do we want to commemorate? If we truly want truth and reconciliation in Canada, for example, how can we continue with statues that honor a man who starved Indigenous people and instigated a system of abuse that still affects Indigenous people today? Because if we keep our statues of John A. Macdonald in our public spaces in Canada, we are perpetuating that abuse. We are legitimizing it. Sure, some of his actions have merit, but can't we find Canadians to honor who did not harm Indigenous people? Surely we have some true heroes that we can honor, heroes that can be respected by everyone. The argument I'm making here is similar to the argument Randy J. Sparks makes in the Art News article. Sparks, another history professor, acknowledges that his own ancestors were slave owners and that he wants to neither honor nor forget the past. I'll read you a sentence from the end of his statement about what to do with Confederate statues. Those monuments are more than a nuisance. They are festering wounds on the body politic, and they need to be excised. No true reconciliation will be possible until we confront all that those statues represent. End quote. Now we could use these same words to describe statues of John A. Macdonald in Canada. No peace, no justice, no peace. 
justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. Several of the art historians quoted in the Art News article suggest creating some kind of institution to house Confederate monuments where people could learn about America's past. This would be akin to the park in Budapest. As it stands, keeping the monuments in public squares does not clearly represent the past or the present. In public spaces where people walk or drive around them every day, on their way to work, on the way to school, etc., They function as painful reminders of the relationship between the past and the present. They they become rallying points for neo-Nazis. They disrupt public space, cause conflict, and have little value. But to put them in a museum with contextualizing information, are the Confederate monuments worth preserving? From an art historical standpoint, Maybe the statue of Lee in Richmond has some artistic merit. It was uniquely created by an accomplished artist. But what might surprise you is that many of the Confederate statues throughout the American South were mass-produced, cheaply made, not unique, and have little to no aesthetic or historical value as material objects. Many of them were installed in the 1960s. What do these more recent statues signify? There's no doubt that their purpose was to create fear and terror to remind those in the civil rights era who was in power. Those statues reminded black children going to desegregated schools that they were not welcome. Several of those interviewed in the Art News article remind us that the tearing down of statues is nothing new. They refer to statues of Stalin or Hitler or Saddam Hussein. In fact, as Squires writes in the Mother Jones article, the removal of statues goes back to ancient history. I'll read you a little section of that article because it's a good synopsis. In 480 BC, when the Persians ransacked the Acropolis, the Athenians coped with their defeat by turning to ritualistic iconoclasm into a way of demarcating the civilized from the savage. Such iconoclastic activity came to be seen as a paradigmatic example of, quote, oriental impiety and violence, writes art historian Rachel Kauser. The stereotype was cemented in the art of the Parthenon, where images of ransacking Persians sat atop columns. Says Bernard, quote, This setup of the East-West dichotomy of civilized, not iconoclastic people against Eastern barbaric iconoclastic people. And that's the end of that section. So the notion of destroying images, or iconoclasm, became negative when the Greeks wanted to position the Persians and the destruction of images as something that was not civilized and in opposition to the Greeks. So... Eastern. We still think of iconoclasm as a negative word, and these negative connotations have a history. Yet those in the West often destroy images during regime changes in war. Many statues of Lenin and Stalin fell along with communism, and statues of French royalty had their noses hacked off by revolutionaries. As art historian Daniel Sherman states in the Art News article, Laws that prohibit the removal of public monuments 
quote, fly in the face of the continuous flux to which monuments have been subject for a whole range of reasons, practical as well as ideological, over the several millennial of their existence, end quote. We might think of monuments as stable and permanent, yet they are not. In the present moment, the destruction of monuments signifies significant social change. So again, what do we do with the rest of these statues? Do we throw them out? We could. We could preserve a few of them in museums, along with other relics. That could work. Another solution is to take down the monuments and put something else up, something that celebrates the social change that is taking place. In Bristol, when the statue of Colston was thrown into the harbour, Black Lives Matter protester Jen Reed climbed atop the plinth and raised her fist into the air. Artist Mark Quinn commemorated that moment by creating a resin sculpture of Reed and placing it on the plinth. The mayor removed it, unfortunately, but is a good example of what might be done to commemorate a protest that took on colonialism and its legacies. This makes me think that it might be okay to keep that statue of Lee in Richmond, because it has been changed through the graffiti. The layers of graffiti function as a record of the protests, a kind of public shared memory. The statue has become a meeting place for those who are actively making change. For those who chant, Black Lives Matter. It is a material object that demonstrates historical change while that change is happening. The monument, altered, defaced, represents a community coming together to show what they want for their present and for the future. It's no longer a monument that commemorates a nostalgic past, that is a past that never really existed, where Lee was a hero. Now I'm looking at another photograph of the Lee Monument in Richmond. There is a lot more graffiti on it. Two images are projected onto it. The face of George Floyd onto the pedestal and the letters BLM onto the side of the horse. It ceases to be a monument to Lee and becomes a living, changing monument to Floyd, to other black people who have died at the hands of the police, to the Black Lives Matter movement that is seeking equality and justice. As a living monument, it is profound, meaningful, and beautiful. It looks to the future rather than to the past. By using projections and graffiti, it moves away from the style of monument that came to be associated with the colonial legacies that we need to leave behind. Maybe then in Canada, in Montreal, the best solution is to leave the decapitated figure of John A. Macdonald as it is, to remind us that although he founded the country, he set in motion the suffering of generations of Indigenous people. To decapitate a representation of someone is symbolic, yet harmless. It is nothing next to the violence he incited. 
Instead, let's have new monuments that move towards reconciliation, created by contemporary artists who are Indigenous or from other underrepresented groups. Unboxing the Canon is hosted and produced by Linda Steer for her course, Introduction to the History of Western Art, in the Department of Visual Arts at Brock University. Brock University is located on the traditional lands of Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. Our sound designer and editor is Devin Dempsey, who is also reading these credits. Our logo was created by Sherry Michaels. The music for this podcast have been adapted from Night in Venice and Inspired by Kevin McLeod. Both are licensed under Creative Commons Attribution International 4.0. We are grateful to Alison Innes from the Faculty of Humanities for sharing her podcast wisdom and offering support. This podcast is funded by the Humanities Research Institute at Brock University.